Hey, deserving listeners, I'm going to answer as many patron emails as I possibly can in an hour. This first email is from Anonymous Upper Tier Patron. They write, how do you deal with someone who has been cheated on and they think constantly that you're cheating on them? How do you deal with them constantly asking you questions, accusing you of cheating on them? My husband asks me very, very often, every day sometimes. I want to know how to help him deal with it. End of email. Well, I don't know your husband. I don't know why he would do that. Someone would have to assess him. But a main hypothesis to pursue is that he suffers from preoccupied attachment, meaning that his early childhood was difficult attachment-wise. And as a result, he copes with that difficulty early in life by being extremely anxious about losing people who are close to him. Basically, when some people are young, they learn that in order to retain some closeness with their loved ones, they have to be in a constant hyper-aroused state, assuming that the other person is about to leave. Because if they don't uh, have that hypervigilance, then the attachment figure will drift away and they will be alone. So they're in a constant state of worrying. It's sort of like you're walking on a high wire and you're balancing there, and you know that if you take your eye off of the wire or you stop concentrating on balancing, you were, you're going to fall. And that might have happened many times to you, right? You're on the, you're on the tight wire, uh, high wire act, and you start to get a little distracted, and then you fall and you hurt yourself. And then you get back up there and you say, okay, make sure you concentrate all the time. Do not stop concentrating. Well, that's what preoccupation is like. When you're two years old, three years old, four years old, you learn stay focused on your parents. Stay focused on your caregivers. Make sure you tell them how you're feeling, what's going on with you. Make sure you make your needs very loud and known. And only then will they stay close to you. Only then will you get a little bit of your attachment needs met. And then as an adult the person retains that neurological pattern. And when they are involved in a relationship, they are in a constant state of assuming that their partner is going to leave them. And that will manifest in a variety of ways. One of the ways is assumptions of infidelity. It very much feels like to the preoccupied person that infidelity is just around the corner or it's already happening because it just feels that way because they're terrified. They're terrified of losing people. They assume that people are going to leave them. They assume they're not good enough for people to stay. And that will manifest behaviorally in very, very frequent accusations of cheating. Now, some preoccupied people, many preoccupied don't focus on the cheating aspect. They'll focus on other aspects. But for some people, definitely that's, that's how it will manifest. So I don't know if that is what your husband is suffering from, but that's one way to see it. Then you ask, how do you know how to help him deal with it? Well, obviously going to therapy to help him heal and get to know his emotions, get to know his attachment reactivity. Upper tier patron Leah from Wisconsin says, I'm listening to your response to a listener's question about mental illness and violence. Would you expand to discuss how to stigma allows us to justify violence against people with mental illness. My former student who suffered from schizophrenia was killed in a police interaction this past summer. He was also black, by the way. How can we humanize people with severe mental illness whose symptoms may present as threatening to others? End of email. 
Yeah. So just to go over the stats a little bit, there is a slight increase in risk of people with severe mental illness, things like schizophrenia, of committing a violent crime. But let's put that into context. Let me use another example. Let's say that to swim in the ocean once every five years, you have an X amount of chance of being eaten by a shark. Okay? Swim in the ocean every five years, you know, what, just once every five years, you have an X amount. Let's say it's like 0. 0.000, you know, whatever it is. It's a pretty small chance of being eaten by a shark. But, you know, there's a chance. Now, let's say that you swim in the ocean every two and a half years. So you swim in the ocean twice as often. Well, now you have a twice as likely chance of being eaten by a shark. Your risk from going from swimming once every five years in the ocean to swimming in the ocean once every two and a half years, your risk of being eaten by a shark has increased by 200% or by two times. So, but we all understand that your chance of being eaten by a shark is extremely low. So even though you're swimming in the ocean every two and a half years, your chance of being eaten by a shark is extremely low, even though it's twice as likely as if, you, you know, compared to if you swam in the ocean half as often. Okay. So most of us understand that's not something to worry about. And even though your risk is greater. Okay. So your risk of being harmed by a violent crime is actually extremely low. Violent crimes are very rare in most societies. And your chance of being harmed by someone who, uh, it, as a factor of their, of, their men, of their mental illness or as a cause of their mental illness, they commit a violent crime, it's slightly higher, but it's, but it's also extremely unlikely. Okay? So that's one thing to remember. And mostly what we're talking about, again, is psychotic disorders. And I can't remember the exact stat, but it's, it's not very much of a risk factor. So anyway, so let me go on. Now, the overall chance of someone with a mental illness harming you is extremely low in the same way that swimming in the ocean, the chance of you, of you being eaten by a shark is also extremely low. Now, if you watch a lot of movies in which shark, sharks eat people, you will be terrified in the ocean about being eaten by a shark, right? A lot, some of you may be like that. That's not a rational fear. You're, now, you're, there's a chance you might be eaten by a shark, but it's extremely unlikely. Now, if you watch a lot of movies in which people with schizophrenia are violent and, and a lot of news stories focus on people with mental illness as a, as a reason or, you know, they identify the reason why that, that the crime happened as a part of their severe mental illness or autism, which sometimes is pointed to erroneously as well, then, yeah, the next time you see someone who seems to exhibit psychosis, you're going to be terrified, not because it's a rational fear, but because that's the way the media has made you feel. So, but the, the main thing to remember here is that when we take people with psychosis who are treated effectively and have access to proper care, their risk actually goes down to normal. So however likely it is that the average person is of committing a violent crime, when you take someone with schizophrenia and you give them access to treatment and you give them proper treatment and you help them to comply with the treatment, their risk returns to normal. So it's not the schizophrenia that causes the increase in risk. It's the lack of access to care. It's very important to, to know. 
So when we're trying to eliminate violent crime in general, and particularly from people who are suffering from schizophrenia, it should not be identifying people with mental illness. That's not the problem. The problem is, is we need to have politicians allocate funds to pay for wraparound services for these individuals, which will do a lot of wonderful things and reduce crime in general and violent crime as well. Reduce homelessness, reduce drug addiction. We need to put money into the system. There are so many people, whenever politicians or oppressed people talk about how there's a broken system, the system isn't broken, people. <laughs> there are so many clinicians out there and social workers doing wonderful work the problem is, is that those social workers and those clinicians have literally 300 clients on their docket, and there's no way they're going to be able to help all those people or give effective treatment to all those people. So by allocating tax dollars, which is the only way to do it, because no, no one's going to give to this charity or no one is giving to this charity or very few people are giving to this charity – if you allocate the tax dollars to it, then you can increase the workforce by five, ten times. And then instead of 500 clients on your docket, you have 55, and you could probably do that. Or you have 30, depending on what part of the system you're in. And so that is the solution. If you want to reduce uh, violent crime and you want to reduce violent crime from people with, with schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders, one, you want to ask, you know, provide access to care and provide proper treatment. And that means tax dollars, people tax, tax dollars. All right. This next email is from anonymous upper tier patron. They write, when I was in the emergency room in the hospital for self harm, the staff told me my long-term therapist called to explain my quote unquote baseline. Is this usual practice to explain one's quote unquote baseline? When I asked my therapist about it later, he said that the hospital was not supposed to tell me about that. Is that usual practice? End of email. So obviously, I can't comment on your particular situation. I would need a lot more detail. But generally speaking, when therapists are talking about baseline, they're talking about how you are when you are at your most calm, I suppose, or at your lowest symptom level. So if someone came into the ER suffering from suicidality or from self-harm of some sort and someone called me, they said, you know, so your client just arrived at the ER. Uh, can you give me this person's baseline? I, what I would tell the hospital is, well, when this person is at sort of cruising speed, if you will, they have, you know, a low level of suicidal thoughts, but they don't usually have a plan. They don't usually think about doing it. They tend to get along well with others. They're functional at their work, you know, sort of their their highest level of functioning that they can sustain for a, a, an amount of time. That's what I interpret baseline to mean and that, that now someone else might use baseline in a different way. But that's an interesting detail to know for a hospital because if someone's baseline is highly symptomatic, then the hospital needs to know that because they need to know what what they're capable of achieving with someone when they come in the hospital. If someone if someone's baseline is highly suicidal, you know, for many, many months, then the hospital needs to know that because they won't expect to be able to get someone 
to a lower level of suicidal ideation because their baseline isn't usually that way anyway. Whereas if they, you know, 364 days out of the year don't really think about suicide much and that's their baseline, then a hospital would like to know that because they would say, oh, well, that will help us to uh, know to have that expectation or to have that hope of getting them to that point before discharge. Now, of course, there's a lot of other conversation that happens beyond just quote unquote baseline. And then you say that when you asked your therapist about it later, your therapist said that the hospital was not supposed to tell you about that. Well, I don't know. I would I would ask your therapist about that and just say, what? Why were they not supposed to tell me? Uh, is it? Are you concerned about? what you guys talked about. Whenever I, I've learned this the hard way. Let me tell you a story. So, well, let me back up even further. So it's very common practice for clinicians in my field to confer, to consult, to talk about a a shared patient or a shared client. So if I have an individual client and that individual client is seeing another therapist for couples therapy, it would be normal for me and the couples therapist to talk about the clients for a number of reasons. One, to coordinate services, but also just to have, you know, two heads are better than one is sort of the thing. And so to consult is, is norm. And it's also considered best practice to not consult for a hospital not to call your therapist is in kind of neglectful because there might be some important details that your ongoing therapist can provide the hospital that you would really need to know as a hospital. So in some ways, you could consider it a neglect for your clinicians not to discuss with each other. Okay. So when I had a, uh, a couple, this was years and years ago, I was treating a couple and I consulted with one of the partner's individual therapists. And this therapist was actually a, a, a past supervisee, a friend of mine, actually. And so her and I talked, her, me, me and the other therapist, about the client. And then the next session with the couple, I spoke with one of the, the member that we talked about. And I said, so by the way, me and your therapist, we, we consulted about you uh, so that we could coordinate care. And the client, he he said, "Wait, what?" And he he the the client normally is uh, his baseline, if you will, is pretty trusting and not usually very complicated as a client. But in this instance, he was really triggered by this. He says to me, "Well, what do you mean you talked with her? You you, you talked with my individual therapist, and of course, we had a release of information. <laughs> we had talked with him. I thought sufficiently about what we were going to talk about. We had him sign the forms. You know, the whole thing." But it, it felt like it came out of the blue to him. But anyway, so he says to me, well, what do you talk about? And I said, oh, well, you know, just the normal stuff. We just talked about what was going on with you guys, the two of you. And we talked about your individual therapy. And we talked about how we could best help you. And, well, well, I don't understand. Like, you know, how come, how, how, you know, what, what, what are all the details? I need to know everything you talked about. And it was in that moment that I realized that when two clinicians talk about a client, it runs the risk of making the client feel as though people are talking behind their back in a negative way, which doesn't usually happen among clinicians. Clinicians are usually either neutral or positive about their clients. So, but a lot of us have traumas 
around being talked about behind our backs in a negative way, particularly if it happened in your family. And so when you have a hospital talking with your therapist and your therapist talking with the hospital and they're talking about things like baseline and all these other kinds of things, it can feel threatening in some way. It, it isn't likely a threat is the thing. It's usually a very dry, boring conversation between two clinicians, usually just checking in with each other to make sure that there's not any massive detail that needs to be shared. And usually there aren't massive details that need to be shared. So anyway, but I don't know your situation, patron. Uh, obviously, I would talk with your therapist about it. And if you feel like some trust was broken there, process that, you know, really get into that with your therapist. All right, this next email is from anonymous upper tier patron. They write, my fiance and I are planning on getting married as soon as possible, and I don't want to invite my parents. We made this decision because my mom's extremely hurtful behavior towards me has been throughout my life. How can I approach this without inadvertently creating a situation where I open myself up to more criticism and being further traumatized by my relationship with my family? End of email. Yeah. So a lot of people ask me questions along these lines, and the the very sort of standard answer I have to this is, Figure out what your goal is, go to therapy, and enact the plan. It's a campaign that you go on. Now, most people in this situation, because they're abused and they're in survival mode, tend to be reactive instead of proactive. Not because there's anything wrong with them, but because trauma tends to do that. People who are traumatized are made to feel like they're supposed to please others, that they don't have rights that they might not even know what they want because they weren't given a chance to really know what do I want, what are my rights, what are my boundaries, all that kind of thing. I was raised pretty well and have never thought I didn't want to invite my parents. So it's hard for me to relate. But because my – and so ironically, because my parents raised me well – I would have no problem telling someone in my life to hit the bricks, <laughs> and I frequently do. It's one of the tragedies of being raised in an abusive way, which is that not only were you mistreated, which is terrible, but because of the mistreatment, you now have a really hard time saying no to people who are mistreating you because you think, well, I don't deserve any better, or I don't even know what I want, or I don't feel confident enough to carry this out, or I'm literally so terrified that I'd rather appease the abuser than push back on them. Yeah, there's various different reasons. So obviously going to therapy is a big part of that. And then figuring out what your overall goal is with your parents. You don't want your parents to come to your wedding. I don't know, but I'm guessing if I talked with you, patron, you would say, you wouldn't want your parents involved in your life much at all. And if that's the case, and you might actually, I, I mean, so I've worked with people for five years before they can admit that. In the beginning of treatment, I'll say, how much do you want your parents in your life? And it'll be a very complicated question for them to answer. Five years of therapy and building up the self and me providing a secure attachment, they're able to answer that question very confidently Oh, if I had it my way, I would never see my parents again. 
I would love to have a wonderful relationship with my parents, but I know that will never happen. And I've tried to engineer that with my parents and it never worked. So yeah, if given the re- reality of the situation, I could, I would be fine if I never talked to them again. And once we establish that, then we can go on a campaign to make that happen. So you ask patron, how can I approach the situation? How can I uninvite my parents to my wedding without, as you're saying, inadvertently creating a situation? Well, you're going to create a situation. Um, And then you say, where I open myself up to more criticism, you're going to be criticized. And so you need to have a campaign, an approach to this whole situation such that when the criticism comes and when their attempts to traumatize you emerge, you have a whole system in place because you know what's going to happen or you know the likelihood is there. And you need a very robust system of therapy, support people, plan, contingencies, boundaries, communications, and not just to your parents, but to people they could triangulate into the situation. And you deserve that. You deserve to live a life where you're not being re-traumatized. All right, this next email from Anonymous Upper Tier Patron, they write, I was always a straight-A student until I got to medical college when everything started to crumble for me. I started having awful anxiety, nausea, and sometimes even chest pain and puking before my oral exams. Days before the exam, I can't eat, sleep, or study. This resulted in me avoiding exams and significantly prolonging my studies. Since I realized my mental health is my personal responsibility, I started CBT therapy, which keeps me going. But even after years of therapy, I still have significant issues. On the other hand, I don't think it's just me. Many, many students attending the same college told me throughout the years they have similar issues and have many prolonged their studies as well. There is only one mental health professional for 2,000 students, and many students don't even know she exists. End of email. All right. Well, I'm sorry you're going through that. Yeah, uh, you know, test anxiety or school anxiety can be very debilitating, and it's really no joke, and you're talking about it. Nausea, chest pain, puking, uh, can't eat, can't sleep, can't study. Uh, that That's common. And as a professor, I have had students who are like that. On the plus side, at my university, we have very few tests because tests empirically are not associated with skill as a clinician. So why would you use a, a, you know, a teaching style that has no connection with actually improving outcomes for your trainees? So we have people write a lot of papers, which gets at the education a little bit better. But anyway, my point is, is that I have had students who have suffered from debilitating school anxiety, and I've worked with them you know, pretty closely. A good number of them drop out of the university because it can be very, very debilitating, as, as you know. And I'm glad you're going to therapy. That's great. You're going to CBT therapy. But I wonder if the problem isn't bigger than that. CBD therapy, cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy can be helpful for sure. And it is the first thing you should try when you suffer from anxiety like this. Working on the cognitions as you head into the oral exam, like I'm going to fail and my life is going to be over, you know, really challenging those automatic thoughts. The sort of behaviors you involve yourself in, you know, these, you know, th- certain kinds of things you can do in preparation for it. But to fully address your anxiety 
CBT therapy or at least or at least the kind of CBT therapy you're getting might not be sufficient. When people suffer from anxiety, when they're treated right, anxiety usually reduces. Now, if you're kind of prone to anxiety, such as I am, you're never going to get rid of it entirely. But I'll just take me, for example. I have essentially treated myself. I've gone to therapy, obviously, over the years and talked about my anxiety. But most of my recovery from my anxiety is self-imposed. I'm a therapist, and so I know how to treat people, and I, I just do it to myself, <laughs> whether it's cognitive therapy or narrative therapy or interpersonal therapy or attachment-based therapy or exposure therapy. I do all these things to myself. <laughs> and yet I still have uh, occasional anxiety or a sort of low-level buzz of anxiety throughout my life. And uh, so be, even though you've gone to therapy, which is great, it might not be enough time. It might not be the right clinician. It might not be the right style. You might have significant traumas in your life that need to be really uh, recovered from. It might take a lot of time. There might be childhood issues that you're dealing with. When people have anxiety regarding uh, school, usually it has its roots in one's childhood uh, for various, you know, there's various different vectors that can that can lead there. But so what I would encourage you to do is, Keep going to therapy, maybe find a different therapist, maybe ask your therapist, hey, I'm still suffering quite a bit here. The other thing is it might just take time. I don't know how, how long of a therapy stint you've had, but it wouldn't be uncommon that it might take five years. I, I've talked with clients around this sort of thing weekly for you know three or four years and experienced 50% reduction in symptoms. It can take a long time. So... You know, just uh, I don't know exactly the situation, but I would stick it out. Now, the other thing you bring up here is, you know, that it's not just you and that many, many students are experiencing the same sort of anxiety that you are. Yeah, it's a common issue. One, anxiety is common. Two, uh, school pressure is common. Three, you mentioned you're going to medical school. And I don't know about your medical school, but a lot of medical schools try to weed out their uh, students by freaking them out, by pushing them really hard. There's a very strong culture, at least in the United States, where people are pushed way too hard. It's sort of like a hazing system where they're trying to get rid of certain people because they only want the toughest people and, and the best of the best. And basically all you're choosing are people who deny their needs and stay up all night and pop pills so they can survive. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course, not everyone, but, but you'll, you'll definitely get an increase in that kind of thing. Instead of getting well-rounded people who value their personal life in addition to being a good clinician. Anyway, so yeah, a lot of people in school and in medical school are absolutely terrified by the system uh, a lot of times there's a lot of pressure in society. So yeah, the fact that you're not alone doesn't surprise me at all. And to my, in my experience, it's getting worse. It's anecdotal, of course, but in my experience, college students are way more, high school students are way more anxious than they were when I was in high school and college. 
I find that people are way more focused on grades these days. When I went to high school and I was in college, I mean, certainly grades were important. And as a straight A, or mostly straight A student myself, I put a lot of pressure on myself. But when I hear people talk today, it's all about getting into the best schools. It's all about getting the best grades, getting the best fellowships, getting the best, uh, you know, internships and I, I think, okay, great, but what about the rest of your life? <laughs> it, some of these, it's, it almost seems like for some people, it's like in order to compete, they must sacrifice everything along the way. Or in order to be a good person, or in order to be a good parent, you must have a child that goes to Harvard or something. And I just find that to be a gross misplacement of priorities. Anyway, let's take a break. We get back. Let's continue answering emails. All right, we're back from the break. Upper tier patron Jess, they write, my cat died and I feel horribly guilty because on the advice of my vet, I chose to have him euthanized and now I can't stop thinking that I betrayed my cat and that he could have had more good days ahead of him. Worst of all, I'm so scared that I had him put to sleep the day my vet suggested it instead of waiting a few days because I was afraid to keep feeling the anticipation of grief. Anyway, I just really miss him. I don't know what my question is, except the grief feels like it will swallow me whole and I'm scared of it. It has only been a few days, though. How long am I going to feel this awful? I see my therapist on Zoom on Wednesday. I kind of miss being a Vulcan who didn't have emotions. End of email. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's awful. To euthanize your pet is one of the most awful emotional experiences you can have. And I've been there. I've been exactly in your position, Jess. My cat would have been... Uh, was it about three or four years ago on Valentine's day, I had been knowing that he was sick for a while. Uh, he was sort of, you know, up and down, up and down. And then one day I brought him into the vet and the, it, my, my regular vet wasn't there. And so there's another doctor there and he does an examination. He comes back into the room and, and he, he left my cat in the back and he comes, he, you know how you go into the exam room and then they take the cat sometimes into the very back. I don't know what's back there, but so I'm sitting in the exam room waiting and he comes into the exam room and he says, so we ran a bunch of tests and we have figured out that his lungs are filled with fluid or I don't know some I can't remember exactly the diagnosis but it had to do with his lungs and you know it, it doesn't look very good and and so I'm I'm listening to this and I'm thinking oh, okay well you know, th that's not good and then all of a sudden the vet says so my recommendation is we we euthanize we euthanize and I'm like oh okay yeah that's that's you know because in my head I'm thinking well, thanks, you know, I'll think about it. And he said something else that intimated, okay, should we do it now? And I thought, I said, wait, what, what are you saying? And he's like, you know, well, should, 
I, I think, you know, do you want to follow through? We could do it today or, you know, we could do it another time. And I, I said, wait, you're suggesting uh, my, my cat, he seems fine. And I'm bringing him in for a checkup just so we can get a kind of a bead on the problem here. And you're telling me you want to kill him now. You want to kill him before I get a chance to say goodbye to him. You're, you're telling me that, you know, I just, I just, pan- now I don't know if he was saying that, but I panicked and I thought, you give me my cat back right now and I'm never letting you near my cat again. It just felt that kind of way to me of just like, I don't know you as a vet and, and you're suggesting that I kill my cat today. He seems fine. <laughs> yeah, he's a little under the weather, but no, give me my, plus I had a an event like, a couple a few years earlier where it looked like his lungs were deteriorating and the vet was saying we should probably put him down and i was like well i you know let's try one more thing and i like really advocated for some extreme antibiotic treatments and it ended up working and then he lived years later after that right so i'm thinking I don't think we're in that situation. I think what we need to do is put him back on those severe a- antibiotics and we'll be good. This will be fine. You know, he's only 13 years old. What are you talking about? <laughs> okay. So he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I take my cat home. Well, he declined pretty sharply after that. Uh, but, you know, I got a couple, I don't know, another two or three weeks out of it. And then it got to a point where it was just, yeah. I need to do this. And so it's just that really rough choice of, well, he's alive now. And even though he's miserable and he's wasting away and I've done all the medical things that I can and he won't eat, but he still looks at me in the eyes. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to cry thinking about it. That's okay because crying is good. Emotions are our friends. And he still purrs when I'm with him. He still wants me to be with him. He's not out of it. He's not unconscious. He's conscious. He's just sick. And yet I know he's on his way out or I'm pretty sure. And I promised myself that I wouldn't hold on longer than I needed to. I promised myself. So, you know, I had to put down a cat, uh, I don't know, eight years prior to that point. And when that happened, I, I waited too long. I waited probably three days too long. And I promised myself that the next cat I had, I would not do that that I would pull the plug when it when the when the thought first felt solid in my mind cuz that there's this sort of emotional process you go through where you're just like yeah this is going to happen it's not a matter of when it's just a matter it's not a matter of if it's just a matter of when it's either going to happen this week or next week you know maybe I can eke out another month I don't know and I and I I let myself hold on a little longer, and when I look back at that cat that I had to euthanize, he was barely conscious. He probably would have died an hour later if I hadn't, you know, called the vet. 
And so I promised myself, I said, for everyone's sake, including mainly the cat, I need to throw in the towel when I know I'm going to throw in the towel, just throw in the towel. So what if you're not going to get another week? The consequences of holding on are greater than getting another week out of it. You know what I mean? And what kind of a week are you getting out of it? You're just getting another week of misery where you're having to do, you know, usually at the end of life with your animal, there's a lot of stuff you you have to do. You have to hand feed them water and head, hand feed them tiny little bits of food and they will usually pee themselves and they're not cleaning themselves anymore and they're barely moving. I mean, not always, of course, but that this is how it was with my cats. So I brought my cat home and he lasted a little longer and I probably waited a, a day too long, but I brought him in and I had him, you know, put down and I cried like I've maybe never cried. It was an awful, awful, awful decision. And it's just an awful place to be put in as a, as a creature. <laughs> Cause it's such a weird position to be in. I mean, even with humans, it, what usually happens is, and sometimes we have to make this call with humans too, by the way, but other times it just means there's other things that people do. I don't want to get into that. But anyway, my point is, is that it's really rough to lose a pet. It is incredibly painful. But then to have it compounded with you were the one that made the choice to end that, that loved one's life. It was completely in your hands. And it's your responsibility to make that choice. That is, that is rough. That is rough. And so, Jess, when you say you really miss him, yeah, you know, we all miss our pets. And then you say, I don't know, you know, if I made the right choice. And yeah, we never know. All, the two cats that I've had to put down in the past 10 years Maybe I made the wrong choice. I don't know. We have to make these like pros and cons kinds of decisions of like, well, maybe, who knows if I wait a few days, maybe it'll turn around. There'll be, maybe a miracle will happen. Things happen sometimes. That's what happens. Miracles happen. Sure. Like with my cat that I had to put down more recently, he was for sure going to die. And I thought, yep, he's, he's. I'm going to have to put him down. They did an x-ray on his lungs and they were like completely filled with something. And they thought it was like cancer or something. They thought it was scar tissue or something. They're just like, yeah, he, there's no coming back from this. And yet I said, probably stupidly on a certain level, I was like, no, we're going to, we're going to go for it. And then he lived another four years. So miracles happen sometimes. And yet, we all also do not want to have our animals go through more pain than they have to just because we can't make the decision. It's just awful. Generally speaking, vets know when. Vets really generally care about animals and they're, they're not going to say, let's euthanize if they don't think there's a chance. You know, vets usually when they're like, yeah, 
it's either it's either going to be now or a month from now, maybe three months from now. But do you really want to roll the dice on a five percent chance? There's a there's like a seventy percent chance that this animal is going to die very soon, and it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be real painful and real ugly for that animal. So, you know what what benefit do you get out of waiting? And so you you know you do it, and it's you, you make that choice. And then for you, Jess, you're just like you feel guilty because you you were like, well, okay, fine, let's do it now because if I bring my cat home, I'm just going to be sitting there at home going, oh my god, it's going to happen. And and for your own sake, you thought, let's just do it now and get it over with. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. So, you know, your vet told you that it was time. And I don't know, but it was probably time. And you probably did make the right choice. And were there more purrs that could have happened between you and the cat? Were there more eye contact and, and petting and you know nice moments you could have had with the cat? Maybe. But there's, there's just nothing you can do about making that choice. It just has to happen. And it's awful. And I wish there was some other way where there was like a, a team of vets that just said, it's time and we have made the choice. And even though you're the owner of the cat, we have made that choice. And so you don't have to be, I, I, I wish that for myself. <laughs> I wish, well, what I wish is that I actually have a song about cats living forever I have a song where I talk about one of the cruel things in life is that dogs and cats don't live very long lives. It's it's just one of the cruel things about nature. Or that we live a long time. Maybe that's the cruel thing. It's like we live so long that we could we can literally go through dozens of pets in our lifetime. It you know, why why can't dogs and cats live longer? <laughs> You know, it's so unfair to them and to us to have to make that choice. It's just really awful. So you asked Jess, you know, how long are you going to feel this awful? Well, it's grief, my friend. And you'll feel as awful as, as it is awful. And I wish, too, that I was a Vulcan as well and that I didn't have any emotions, but... But we have emotions, and that's just how it is. Wow, this next email is very apropos. Patron Simon from Ireland wrote in and said, I recently worked up the courage to listen to your pet grief podcast. So I did an episode on the grief of losing your pets. While upsetting, it was incredibly validating to hear, and I just wanted to say thank you. So... I mean, here, I recorded that pet grief episode after my dog died last year. I think that's when I recorded that episode. She died traumatically. She had a seizure disorder for years and went to the hospital. You know, we, we took her to the hospital all the time when she would have seizures. 
And we would leave her there overnight sometimes. And she'd come home and she'd be kind of weird and groggy for a bit, but then she'd be fine. And then routine thing, took her to the hospital and they called one day and just said, oh, we're sorry to tell you that your dog died. And th- that was, I wanted I wanted to have an investigation. I was like, how did this happen? You know, anyway, so listen to that whole episode. But anyway, while upsetting, it was incredibly validating to hear. And I just wanted to say thank you. I recently lost my dog Rosa a few months ago through a horrendous set of circumstances and have been struggling greatly with it. She was a tiny chihuahua. And as I was coming down the stairs, I wasn't watching where I was going and she got under my foot and she died. Oh my God. Um, let me, so she was a tiny, she was a tiny chihuahua. And I was, as I was coming down the stairs, I wasn't watching where I was going and she got under my foot and she died. When it happened, I knew straight away that she was gone. I'm doing better now, but the circumstances still suck with me, still sticks with me. And I feel tremendous guilt at the way she died. Coming back into work, I was telling my coworkers about what happened when one of, this, one of them said, oh, you squished her. I asked him not to say that again, and lo and behold, he said it again. I flipped out at him, telling him to go fuck himself, and was somewhere, summarily reprimanded at work by a disciplinary committee. I, near, I nearly lost my job because of it. It got me thinking about how society deals with grief and the nature of traumatic grief. I've recently started training in counseling and psychotherapy as a result of this happening and to try to make some meaning from all this. End of email. So, patron Simon from Ireland, I am just so sorry. And I remember my wife, Stacy, read this email and she said she cried a lot. I remember you, you, you emailed this a while ago. I remember her telling me about she, that she read this email and she just said she cried and cried because she really loves animals too. And wow, Patriot Simon, that is just so terrible. I mean, that happens all the time. Uh, your your animals, it's like they don't understand how our feet work or something, and they just get right underneath our feet. Now, normally, we just stomp on their foot or something, and they yowl, and you feel terrible, or they trip you, and you, <laughs> you go flying. But you stepped on your tiny chihuahua in such a way that it, it, the, the dog died. That is just so terrible. I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, it's so terrible to have an animal die and then to have one die in that way. You know, I've heard of similar things like people accidentally running over their their animals in the car or something. You know, they, They're backing out of the garage. They don't see and the cat or the dog runs out you know you just hear about these stories it's just got it's just it's an accident it's just tragic you're walking down the stairs you didn't want to hurt your dog and it's just it's just a complete accident right and then you're grieving and you go back to work and you tell one of your coworkers what happens and they say oh you squished her what the fuck dude what the fuck and then you say, hey, don't say that again. They say it again. And then you you tell him to go fuck himself, which honestly, if it was me, I'd put his head under my foot and I'd, I'd squish his head. <laughs> Let me show you, you know, what, what, what happened. You know, I don't know. Uh, yeah. If someone, God, what kind of an idiot 
says that. And you were completely justified in telling him to go fuck himself. In fact, you are complete. Play this. Play this to your to your uh, work, your disciplinary committee at work. Or better yet, have them write me. A, I will write a letter for you and say, as a clinician, I endorse your behavior and that that co-worker definitely needs to go fuck himself and the disciplinary committee needs to go fuck themselves too. How in the world is it not justified to tell someone to go fuck themselves when they're essentially making a joke or they're making light of this terribly tragic event? You know, okay, fine. You don't understand how much pets mean to you. To people, you know, you're you're one of those people. You're one of those monsters that don't have an that don't like pets. <laughs> I don't want to say that. There's probably some of you that don't have pets, but honestly, anyway, <laughs> my parents don't have pets. I think it's a generational thing too. Anyway, point is is that um, you deserved to be angry in that moment. You deserved to tell someone to go to hell. You did not deserve to be disciplined <laughs> and nearly fired because of it. But bottom line is, is you lost your dog, and I'm just so sorry about that. These kinds of stories are happening all the time, and I'm quite sure there are thousands of people listening right now who are relating to you, patron Simon and, and patron Jess, that there's so many people just being like, yep, I've been there with the euthanasia. Oh, I've been there with the accidents. Yep, I've been there with one of my pets who suddenly died. And yep, I've been there when I tell people about it and they don't seem to care. It's like, oh, we'll just get another chihuahua. Well, whatever. Oh, your your wife died? Oh, you know, just go on Tinder, just replace her. That'll be fine. You know, like what? Who are you? Pull your head out of your ass, people. Like, is it is it hard to imagine that people can become attached to their pets? I mean, is that a foreign idea? Have we not had pets literally for centuries and and millennia? <laughs> like the notion of being attached to uh, domesticated animals shouldn't be foreign to people. The Egyptians did it for crying out loud. It's not a new thing. It's the Kardashians didn't invent being attached to your animals. So what's wrong with you that you can't understand that people would be attached to their animals? Ugh. But yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry for you, Jess. I'm sorry for myself. I'm sorry for you, Simon. I'm sorry for all you listening right now. Let's all uh, collectively grieve the animals that have died and the animals that probably will. You know, the animals that are in your house right now, hard to think about. Uh, you know, we're, we'll probably outlive them. And my God, when I think about that. But it's real. And without, without them, where would life be? Without their love and their fun things and their poops <laughs> and their throw-ups. My cat, <clears throat> my cat, one of my cats is pretty sick. Or I don't know what's wrong. She's old. She literally, while I was, so if you heard her meowing earlier in the episode, she gets, 
she gets in these kind of states where she's real, I don't know, I think she, she doesn't feel good. Her stomach doesn't feel good. And she just meows at me thinking I can solve it somehow. And I can't. And uh, she, because of her stomach problems, she, uh, she puked everywhere and she uh, pooped outside of her litter box. She pooped in, she pooped right next to me. <laughs> two little, two little nuggets in uh, I saw one of them, and so I just I paused the podcast and I disposed of one of them. But uh, there was one that was sort of hidden, and I kept while I was recording, I kept smelling it, and I was like, "Golly, that one little poop really left a a mark in my office." I threw it away like fifteen minutes ago, and then I looked over, and oh no, there's another nugget there, and I got rid of that guy. Uh, yeah, you know, she's not doing well. But, you know, every, it's probably once every two weeks she goes through one of these kind of episodes and then she bounces back and everything's fine. She's a tough old lady. But, you know, that time probably is somewhere in the future. And so let's all do two things before adjourning today. One, let's all love our animals and appreciate who they are. Let's do three things. The second thing is, is let's all grieve together because we all understand each other through this grief, right? And the third thing we're all going to collectively do is I want you to say out loud as you're listening to this, or under your breath, in case you're in public, to tell patron Simon's co-worker to go fuck himself. Ready? One, two, three. Go fuck yourself. Because you deserve it. You really, really do. 